Father, you are our first love. You encouraged the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation to return to their first love, to return to their former works when they had strayed away from you. And I know, Father, there's times for all of us when we stray away from your perfect will for us and we get on some sort of path that you don't want us on and you call us back to yourself. And I thank you for that. I know, you know, we always talk about, Lord, giving people second chances and you've given me a thousand second chances and I am, I am so, so grateful. And I pray that we would just all be able to continue in you by your grace, by your, the power of your spirit working in each of us. I pray, Father, as we continue in an attitude of worship and turn our hearts toward your word this morning, that you would speak to us, that you would guide us, that your voice would be the voice that we hear, and that you would be glorified in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the opening 18 verses of chapter 10, and it really isn't an opening of anything, it's actually a closing, because we have a succinct summary of the last few chapters, of how Jesus is greater than the Old Covenant, mediator of the New Covenant with a perfect sacrifice, and this perfect sacrifice perfects and sanctifies us who believe in him. What we also find when we come to the close of these 18 verses is that the theologically focused section of Hebrews will actually come to a close and the remainder of the book will be focused on practical application. Now, when we started chapter 7, which at this point was well over a month ago, I think, I told you that I think 7, 8, 9 in the first part of chapter 10, it's the first 18 verses of chapter 10, should all be taken together. It is one, it is what the six chapters all before it led up to. This really becomes the biggest theological point of the book of Hebrews. Now that takes us all the way back to the beginning of the book of Hebrews, where we A, have to remember the audience. The audience, in case the name doesn't give it away, was Jewish people. It also gives us evidence to the authorship, which you probably all remember, I truly believe, of Paul. Because all of Paul's epistles do what Hebrews is doing, right? Theological content and then practical application. So the rest of the book of Hebrews is a lot of fun, a lot of, right? We've given you all of this. What do you do with it? So, we'll really get into that more next week. But these opening 18 verses, as I said, are pretty much a summary. Think of it as Hebrews 7, 8, 9 are the sermon, and 10, 1 through 18 is the conclusion of that sermon. Way too much in there for us to do it all at once, but I would highly recommend, I always recommend this, um, you could go back and read those chapters all together, or you can just read the whole book of Hebrews all together. And you can read the whole book of Hebrews every week, every day. Read them along with the whole book of Romans and the whole book of John. Right? Just quit your job and read the Bible. Um, 
but because these were always meant to be taken in context. Right? It was written, here's the letter, you sat down and you read the whole thing. And over the years, um, I don't know if we've gotten a little more dull or a little slower or what the word might be, but sometimes I look at two or three verses and go, I, I don't, I don't want to go farther than that because <laughs> there's so much in there. With all that being said, let's read the opening four verses for our message today. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So we've talked about all of this. The law was only a shadow of what was coming. It wasn't the full image. It wasn't the true likeness because the law could not purify the worshipers. The law could not take away sin. Instead, the law served as a reminder of sin, not a remover of sin. And those two things are, of course, very, very differently. And this is shown in the fact that the sacrifices had to be repeated year after year, month after month, day after day, feast after feast, over and over and over and over again. Right? So if I brought the bull or the calf or whatever it was I was sacrificing and that was all that was necessary for my sin, I wouldn't have to go back. But we've talked about that. What would happen? Um, we just went through, if you pay attention to the Jewish calendar at all, which I don't, my phone does and reminds me of stuff. Uh, we just went through Rosh Hashanah, which is uh, the Jewish New Year. And in that Jewish New Year, uh, that will be, of course, then leading up to... Um, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Well, what was the point of the Day of Atonement? Well, if you go back into the book of Leviticus and you read about the Day of Atonement, every year they would make a ton of sacrifices. Probably well more than a ton. Um, and it would be all these various animals and it would culminate with two goats. One goat would be slaughtered and the blood of that animal would be taken into the Holy of Holies. This was when the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, the only time he was allowed. And he would sprinkle the mercy seat and the implements within the Holy of Holies with the blood of that goat. The other goat would have a red ribbon or some sort. I think it was red. Uh, at least that's what they do now. I don't think that was commanded in Scripture. But they would, the priest would lay his hands on the head of that goat, confessing the sins of the people. Then they would let it go. And that goat would run out into the wilderness. And they called it the scapegoat. And it was the picture of Israel's sins going away. But it was only temporary. It was insufficient. Because what would happen? Well, the next year, Yom Kippur would roll around. 
they'd get themselves a couple more goats and a whole bunch of other animals, and they'd kill them all over again. And that's not even considering the morning and evening sacrifices, the individual sacrifices, the sacrifice for feasts, the sacrifice for the new moon, the sacrifice for the Sabbath. And over and over and over and over and over again, and it was all meant to remind the people of their sin. Because it couldn't actually remove it. It was impossible that the blood of animals could actually take away sin. This is why Paul said in Romans 7, verse 7, I would not have known sin except through the law. We've talked about this. If you haven't read the book of Galatians as your homework yet, highly recommend it, because the book of Galatians explains it so wonderfully, especially up in chapter 3, that the law is our tutor, our schoolmaster, which leads us to Jesus Christ. But the law could not make anyone perfect. The flaw was human beings. No offense. Anybody here not know they're flawed? I'm sorry, Roy. I know that may have been a... Been a <laughs> right? That was the flaw. Because in order to keep the law, it relied on the faithfulness of human beings. And we're all human beings. And what do we know about human beings? Well, sometimes we kind of suck. Not you. I mean, you know, the masses. You're all wonderful. <coughs> but we all, right, if it relied on us to any degree whatsoever, we would be in all kinds of trouble. So the law was only meant as a reminder. But what the law could not do, right? That's the first four verses. What the law could not do, starting in verse 5, Jesus did. And I love that. We could take that and we could put anything in place of the word law and make that sentence apply to every aspect of our lives. Right? What the law could not do, Jesus did. What that relationship could not do, Jesus did. What that job could not do, Jesus did. What that hobby could not do, Jesus did. Get the picture, right? Because there's nothing in our lives that will not, at some point, in some way, shape, or form, let us down. There's just not. You can have the greatest marriage, the greatest job, the greatest friendships, the greatest, all of it, but at some point in time, those things will let you down in some way. They just will. And what they can't do for us, Jesus can. Let's pick up in verse 5. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burn offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, 
that he may establish the second by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. <clears throat> Sorry. Oh, that was better. I'll be right back. So this quote is from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. And it shows us, once again, that what the law could not do, Jesus did. God was not pleased with the sacrifices. And, and it may, you may ask, well, why did he set up that system if he knew he wasn't going to be happy with the way it worked? Go read the book of Galatians. Or you can go listen to the study we did on YouTube. Because the book of Galatians explains it wonderfully. So do portions of the book of Romans, like uh, chapters 3, 4, and 5, um, and 6, and 7. Uh, <laughs> you can listen to those studies as well if you want. Because he had to show us that we couldn't do it. And so he was never pleased with those sacrifices, not because the law had a problem, but because the people attempting to keep the law had a problem. And quite often, those sacrifices became an act of religious observance as opposed to an act of worship. And those two things are very, very different. Like, I love being here. I hope you do too. We have some of our, uh, our church family who aren't here with us today, and that's okay. Those who really love Jesus are here. But, what good does it do to sit in this building, to sit in these chairs, to sing the songs, to listen to me babble on, to put up with the, this really busy shirt that I decided to wear today, um, if it's just what you're supposed to do? Are you here because this is what you're supposed to do? Or because it's what you want to do? And I'm going to be honest very honest with you. I would love to say I'm always here because it's what I want to do. I love you all. I love my job. I love our church. I love what I get to do. Sometimes I'd rather stay in bed. I'm not going to lie. Most of the time I wake up whatever day it is, whether it's a Sunday or a Wednesday or a Tuesday, and I'm excited that I get to do what I do. Maybe I've got an appointment to that day or over the last couple months, I've done a couple funerals, and I've done a wedding, and I've done, just, it's been a, a very busy season for me, which has been wonderful, I'm not complaining. And, and I wake up, you know, I led worship last night, which was awesome, I, I love doing that. And I love what I do, but I would be lying to you if I told you every time my eyes opened, I popped out of bed and said, woohoo, and you know, I said, no, come on now, we all know better. You probably don't do it, and I know I don't. But in the end, when I wake up, and it's Sunday morning, even if I get that, that little gnawing feeling in the back of my head that, yeah, I don't want to get out of bed, it's warm, my wife's drooling on me, it's wonderful. <laughs> so the other morning, this has nothing to do with my sermon, 
Uh, it was Thursday, as a matter of fact. I woke up and she had her head on my chest and she was sleeping and, and her alarm went off because she had to go to leave and I, I got up shortly thereafter. So I got up and, and now you guys are gonna learn something about me you probably don't wanna know. That is usually whatever shirt I sleep in the night before is the shirt I wear the whole next day. I shower, don't worry. Um, but it's just easier then I don't have to find a new shirt in the morning. Um, I got here, I got to the church on Thursday morning. I went into the restroom and I went and I washed my hands and I looked in the mirror and all, all down this side of the chest of my shirt was dried white drool. It's awesome. Yeah, see, you guys wanted to know that, didn't you? And she's not even going to be mad at me later. She's smiling. Now, come on, folks. She's drooling over me. Or because she's snoring. I don't know. It's one of the two. But you get a point. <laughs> there you go. That's why I married her. Um, yes, but I had a point. I told you that had nothing to do with it. But the point of it all is, if you just do something because you're supposed to, that doesn't honor God. Right? If you just come to church because you're supposed to, that doesn't honor God. If you just give because you think you're supposed to, that doesn't honor God. We have way too many people, billions of people in the world who have constant religious observance but they have no personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. They do not have a growing relationship. They do not have a living relationship. They are not serving because the love of Jesus Christ is their motivation. They're serving because they want to impress people or because they want people to like them or because it looks good in the community or it looks good on a resume. That's not the reason why. They're giving because they think they have to, right? They're showing up on Sunday morning. Well, it's Sunday. I guess I better go to church. If that's your attitude, I highly encourage you to stay home, drink a cup of hot cocoa, come back when you feel better. Yeah, I know. That's a horrible thing for me to say because I want you here. I really do. I want you here. I want other people here. I want everybody here. But some mornings, it's okay. I've had people text me before on Sunday morning. Hey, we're not going to be there. We got up and just couldn't do it. I understand. I get it. That's okay. Because we're not about legalism. We're not about making you feel guilty. We're about Jesus. And you want to know what? Sometimes, yesterday, we spent almost the entire day sitting on the couch in our pajamas, uh, playing video games, and then watching TV. And we got to the middle of the afternoon. We didn't go outside. We didn't exercise. We didn't shower till much later in the day. We, we ate horribly, or at least I did. So the, at City Market, they've got these little drumsticks, ice cream cones. They're this big, and so you can eat like eight of them, and it doesn't make any difference. You, you're supposed to eat one, but I just do everything better. When we got towards the end of the day, and. I had to get, uh, get off the couch and shower because and, and I led worship at Rick's church last night. And my wife and, and Hannah, they were like, well, gosh, we just didn't do anything. I'm like, yeah, it's okay. We needed a day to not do anything. We really did. It's been a long time since we've done that. The whole point. Wow. I got lost there for a little bit. I apologize. But the whole point is God wasn't pleased with their sacrifices. 
because it was simply religious observance. It wasn't because they truly wanted to worship him. So what did he do? He prepared a body for Jesus the Son, whom the volume of the book points to. We talked about this, I think it was a couple weeks ago, but Jesus said in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. So I'm just going to bring it up briefly, because we did talk about it a week or two ago. All of the word of God, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, points to Jesus Christ. All of it. Why are there these endless genealogies in 1 Chronicles? You ever read 1 Chronicles? First 10 chapters are, are lists and lists and lists of unpronounceable Hebrew names. Do you know why they're there? Because those lists prove that Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, which means he could claim the throne of Israel. Those lists are important. I, I usually don't read them. But I know why they're there, and now you do too. You go back. Why, why do we go through things like Leviticus? Or why do we read things like, you, you know, Second Chronicles? Or why do we go through minor prophets? Why should we even spend time there? Because all Scripture, is inspired by God, breathed out by God. All scripture is profitable. We need all of it. Because Jesus himself said, you searched the scripture, scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. Here in the book of Hebrews, we are told that the volume of the book is written of me. Not me, Jesus. Why did he give this to us? He gave this to us so we could know him because it's all about him. And then he said he came to do the will of your father. In verse 7, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire. And then verse 9, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So the will of the Father, first part of the will of the Father was that he took away the first covenant by fulfilling it in himself. A lot of people get this idea, oh, well, I'm a new covenant believer. That means the old covenant is just gone. I don't need it anymore. And that's partially true. But it's not gone because God got rid of it. It's gone because Jesus fulfilled it. And so we find the fulfillment of that old covenant in Jesus Christ. It's not just that we dismiss it, but we find the fulfillment of it in Jesus Christ. But he took that away by dealing with it himself and then established the second or the new covenant in his own blood. I don't want to get into that too much. We spent all of chapter 8 dealing with that and diving into what the new covenant is. If you missed that, it is, of course, on our website or our Facebook page. But the new covenant in his blood, by which we, of course, are saved, and he says in verse 10, by that will, 
we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The word sanctified means to be set apart. And we are set apart by the blood of Jesus Christ once for all. We've talked about that again. The sanctification being spoken of here is what we call positional sanctification. If you look at that phrase, it says we have been sanctified. Past tense and completed. Have been sanctified. And this is our position as righteous and just before God in Jesus Christ. Positional sanctification is settled when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. God no longer sees us in our sin, but he sees us clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us. Jesus took our sin upon himself, and then he took his righteousness and put it on us. When God looks at me, when God looks at you, he doesn't see our sin. Now, don't be silly enough to think that that means he doesn't know about it, or that we don't need to repent of it, or that we can commit whatever sin we want because God doesn't see it. Don't do that. But what he sees is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I illustrated this at camp, and there are no small children in here, so it wouldn't be as effective. But there was a, a little girl at camp who was yay high, and I had her come up and I had her stand in front of me. And I said, there you go, right? That's when we try to stand before God in our sin. We can see her. And then I had her go around behind me. And when she stood behind me, you know, despite my slight figure, she was completely hidden from sight. Why? Because that's what it looks like when we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. God doesn't see us in that, in our sin, in our failures. He sees us clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That is positional sanctification. That is our position before God in Christ. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren beloved by the Lord. Because God, from the beginning, chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We looked at 1 Corinthians 6.11 uh, last week or the week before, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And this position that we have in Christ before God is based on his finished work. It's based on what Jesus did on the cross. There's nothing we can do to add to it. There's nothing in all creation that can remove us from it. Jesus did it. What the law could not do, Jesus did. What you and I could not do by our own good works or our own best efforts, Jesus did. And now we have this position before God. It's beautiful. And what's it for? Well, so that we 
could be perfected forever in Christ. Verse 11. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Keep those two words in mind. We're going to come back. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. There's a lot in there. And it's all beautiful. We know the priests had to make repeated and daily sacrifices. But these sacrifices that we've talked about could never take away sin. But Jesus could. And he did. And he did this through the one perfect sacrifice that he offered of himself on the cross. Again, we talked about that in chapter 8 and in chapter 9. That they repeatedly offered sacrifices, but Jesus made one sacrifice. One perfect sacrifice. A sacrifice that is universally applicable to all who believe and eternally sufficient so that no other sacrifice will ever be necessary. I'm going to say that again because if you never hear anything else from me ever as long as I'm here, hear this. Jesus' sacrifice is enough. That one sacrifice of himself on the cross is universally applicable. It doesn't just apply to this group or that group. It doesn't just apply, you know, to white Republicans in America. I know. It doesn't just apply to... Well, I'm going to get myself in trouble because I started thinking about that universally applicable. What does that mean? What if that means you are uh, a trans transgender uh, or you're gay or, or you're uh, some other kind of, of sinner? What, is, what if that means that you're in prison because you murdered people? What if that means um, that you don't look like me or you don't talk like me or you don't act like me? What if that means you're from the, 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 the most desolate part of the desert in Africa? or you're from the deepest part of the most primitive jungle in South America? What if that means you were born into communist China? What if you are in Russia, or you are in post-Christian Europe? Or, 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 it applies to everyone. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that who so ever would believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Universally applicable. You will never meet a person, ever. I don't care how horrible they are. I don't care what they look like. I don't care where they come from. I don't care how they vote. You will never meet a person that God does not love who he did not sacrifice his son for. Never, ever, ever. And your job 
and my job doesn't change based on who they are. Our job remains the same, to share the love of Jesus Christ with each and every one of us. Universally applicable. Then, eternally sufficient. I like that part too. Because eternally sufficient means there never will be a time throughout all of whatever existence will ever be where the blood of Jesus Christ will not be enough to save you or I or anyone else. Never, ever, ever, ever. Universally applicable and eternally sufficient. There's nothing we can add to it. It says that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Jesus' ascension to the right hand of God the Father is shown to us in multiple places in Scripture. The book of Luke, the book of Acts, the book of Philippians, the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation 19 and, and following specifically shows us where Jesus' enemies are his footstool. This, of course, is a fulfillment of Psalm 110, verse 1, which says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And Jesus quotes this verse concerning himself in Matthew 22, verses 41 through 46. Universally applicable and eternally sufficient doesn't mean that God doesn't have enemies. It doesn't mean that there aren't people who will reject him. And that, that's sad. Last week we talked about the verse, it's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about judgment today. But the reality is, there are those who will continue to reject him. And when he returns, it's not going to go well for them. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Notice the difference? In the last section, we talked about those who have been sanctified. Past tense, completed, done. Our positional sanctification in Christ. Accomplished by the perfection of Jesus' sacrifice. But then we see the second type of sanctification. Those who are being sanctified. That is what we call practical sanctification. This is the process whereby the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives and we are growing in our faith and spiritual formation into the image of Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-8 For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this manner, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us 
his Holy Spirit. So there is this dichotomy that is beautifully coupled together. We have our positional sanctification. We have been justified before God, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and this was completely accomplished for us by Jesus Christ, and we enter into this position by faith through his grace when we believe. There's nothing we can add to it. There's nothing we can do about it. There's nobody who can take it away from us. It is our position in Christ. It's part of our identity in Christ as followers of Christ, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Positional sanctification. Practical sanctification is a little bit different. Now, if you're honest with yourself, hopefully you're different today than you were five years ago, ten years ago. Hopefully you're different today than you were a couple weeks ago or a couple months ago. We should all be growing in our faith in Jesus Christ. We are growing in the grace, in faith, into the image of Jesus Christ as we are transformed and empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a life that honors him. Practical sanctification. This is not our position in Christ. This is us growing day by day, week by week, on and on and on, so that the longer we walk with Jesus Christ as our Savior, the more like him we become. Romans 8, 29 through 30, I think, puts it together pretty well. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. We see both in there. We see positional sanctification. Predestined, called, justified, glorified. Positional sanctification. But for what? What was the purpose? That we would be conformed into the image of his son, that we would become more and more like Jesus Christ every day. And what you'll probably find, if you're anything like me, is a very interesting tension between those two things. I know my position in Christ, my identity in Christ. I am righteous before God in Christ. Not because of me, but because of him. I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ. My sin cast as far as the east is from the west. I can boldly approach the throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help me in my time of need. All because of who Jesus Christ is. And then somebody cut me off while I was driving and I extended them the one finger of fellowship. Okay, I don't do that. Never. Never. Pat said, I never do that. We've never really ridden in a car together. Um, I really don't, right? But there's that tension. Because I know who I am. But it doesn't always look that way. Does it? Sometimes I'm impatient. Sometimes I'm angry. Okay, I'm always impatient. Sometimes I'm angry. Sometimes I say or think something that I shouldn't. Sometimes I do this, that, or the other thing that I know in my mind is not who I am. But for some reason it comes out anyway. 
Paul explained this so beautifully in Romans chapter 7. You know, I want to do these things and I don't do them. I don't want to do that and that's what I do. What in the world is wrong with me? Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And of course he says, I praise God, it's through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Because there's this constant tension. I've used this word before, and I love this word, and, and, and it's a great word, it's a great phrase. Eschatological dualism. Big, fun, right? Eschatological dualism. Who I am, and who I am becoming, and who I'm supposed to be, essentially. Because who I am in Christ is not fully realized in this physical body yet. But I'm becoming more like him. And one day, I will know, even as I am known, I will see him the way he sees me now. Go read 1 John chapter 3, it's awesome. But that's positional sanctification and practical sanctification. And he says, the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days. I'll put my laws into their heart and in their minds I will write them. Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. This is quoted from Jeremiah 31, verses 33 to 34. This was quoted in Hebrews chapter 8. And we studied it in depth when we talked about the new covenant. Because that's the new covenant. Right? He'll take his word. He's going to put it in our heart and in our minds. Our sins, he's going to get rid of. Our lawless deeds, he's going to remember no more. That's the new covenant of grace. And he says, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. And this is one of the most glorious truths we can take away from today. Once we have entered into remission or the forgiveness of sin that is offered to us as a free gift of salvation by grace alone, there is no longer an offering for sin. There is nothing else that can be done. We are forgiven. This is our position before God in Christ. What an incredible gift. As we close, over the last three chapters, we have simply and beautifully and with great complication and all kinds of wonder, we have seen that what the law the older first covenant could not do, Jesus did when he established the new covenant in his blood. This is the covenant that is based on his perfect sacrifice, the sacrifice which takes away all our sin and makes us perfect in him forever. This is the covenant whereby we are given a sanctified position of justification and righteousness before God the Father in Christ forever, which was applied to us by the Holy Spirit. This is the covenant by which we are daily being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit and guidance of God's word so that we can live lives that honor him. This is the overall message of the book of Hebrews. This is what Jesus, our great and perfect high priest, has done for us so that we can be holy to us. So two questions. I love these little questions at the end. I hope you do too. The first one, have you received that positional sanctification by believing in Christ? 
Anybody here? To anybody listening online, or anybody who might hear this recording later, that you go, well, how do I know if I have that position? How do I know? Well, you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came and lived a sinless life, that he died a substitutionary death, that he rose again on the third day. And the Bible says whoever believes in him will be saved. When you believe that, turning from your sin and turning to God, you are given that position. So if there's anybody listening, wherever they may be, who needs that, leave us a message, make a comment, go to our website and, and send me an email. We would love to help you with that. But number two, that's for those of us who do know Jesus Christ. And that is, are you in, it says your, doesn't it? Man, I got to talk to the person who does this. Are your intentionally, are you intentionally growing in your practical sanctification through the power of God's Holy Spirit and guidance of his word? And I ask that question because we tend to think we're okay. Yeah, I'm doing okay. You know, I, I go to church, I read my Bible sometimes. I'm, I got to be doing okay. All right, this is not about making you feel guilty. This is not saying that if you don't read 10 chapters of the Bible a day and spend three hours on your knees, you're not really a Christian, right? Because I don't do that. And I know I'm saved by his grace. But this is about, are you intentionally moving forward in your relationship with Christ? Because if we're not intentionally moving forward, we're going backward. There is no standing still. It's not like you get to a place where I know enough about the Bible and I've said enough prayers and I've been to church enough times, right? I've hit the limit, I'm good. Uh-uh. None of us will ever get there. Not while we're here. One day we'll stand right in front of him and it's going to be awesome and nobody's going to care. <laughs> but until then, we are to intentionally grow in that relationship by being in the word and being in prayer and being in fellowship, and being in service, and making him that number one priority in our life. And that's for all of us, right? I don't, I don't ever say these things and look at all of you like, <laughs> you better. We all need that. We all need to be more intentional about our relationship with him. Amen? That was a weak amen, folks. Uh, <laughs> I'm not like you can have a weak amen. That's okay. Let's pray, and we will uh, eat. Woohoo! It's potluck Sunday. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your love. Thank you for the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the position we have before you as righteous in Christ our Savior. I pray, Father, that we would celebrate, rejoice, and rest in that position that is ours. And Father... I thank you that we are being sanctified, that we can grow in this relationship with you, that you, by your Holy Spirit, by your word, are conforming us to be more and more like our Savior. Help us with that, Father. Help each and every one of us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May it all be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.